check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Hello, this is Anna Geiger from The Measured Bomb, and today I have a treat for you. I'm interviewing Christina Winter of Mrs. Winter's Bliss, a real-life friend of mine and also someone I've known of for a long time in the online space. She's been operating her website, Mrs. Winter's Bliss, for some time, and she was also a classroom teacher for over 20 years and was known among her staff as the Queen of Centers. And I know you'll figure that out in this episode because she really gets into the weeds with me and talks about all the specific things that you should keep in mind when doing centers and how to manage them so they go smoothly and you can meet with your small groups without interruptions. So, so let's get started. Welcome, Christina. Hello, Anna. So good to be here. Yes. So Christina is a real life friend of mine. We connected at the Reading League event in New York in October of 2023. It was wonderful. And we've also, Christina has also been on the podcast previously. So I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. But maybe you could just give us a quick couple of sentences about who you are and what you do. Um, I am a former first grade teacher for over two decades, and I now am not teaching in the classroom, but I work with teachers, um, kindergarten, first and second grade teachers, and you can find me at my home website, Mrs. Winter's Bliss. Wonderful. So you have become an expert in centers, and so that's what what's, we're going to talk about today. But first, I'd like to just lay the foundation. There's Interestingly, there are conversations in big Facebook groups that um, we don't need centers anymore now that we're not doing guided reading or that there's no need for small groups. They were really a waste of time, which I find really interesting and kind of sad because we know that even if, even if, as some teachers do, you teach a whole group phonics lesson, you still need small groups after because unless you have a really unusual situation, which I've never heard of, your whole class is not going to be at the same skill level. So you have to fill gaps. You should challenge some kids. And so if you're doing that, you need something for the rest of the class to do, which is where centers come in. And then also the method that I prefer, if your students are at different places in their foundational skills journey, that you differentiate from the beginning. And hopefully with other teachers, so they don't have to spend a ton of time doing centers. But realistically, you probably would need at least 30 minutes of center time per day if you're working to meet the needs of everyone in your class. But there's another reason for centers too. Can you talk to us about that? You know, I understand where people are coming from. When you're in these groups and you hear it's a waste of time, it can be a waste of time. But if centers are done correctly, they are really effective and really engaging for students. So let's take a minute to think about like the I do, we do, you do model. Like, you know, that gradual um, release of responsibility. So we know that our students need a lot of practice. And those early learners, they need tons and tons of repetition, tons of practice to reach automaticity, reach fluency. Um, you know, Wiley Blevins, he really reminds us that skills can take four to six weeks to mastery, and we need to be teaching for mastery. But our curriculums are moving so quickly. Um, and so literacy centers are the time that our students really need to practice new skills, but practicing skills that we have explicitly taught. We have to teach them and then work with them. Again, that I do, I'm the teacher, I model it for you. We do, that's our guided practice. And then the you do, like our students are actually practicing. We're releasing responsibility and giving them the opportunity to practice. And um, Wiley Blevins tells us like that 
When students are engaged in authentic reading and writing activities, that is where learning is solidified. That's where our skills stick. And so for that, I really think that literacy centers is such an effective way for our students to really master skills as we teach them. Yeah. So it's that automaticity piece. I think one thing to remember about centers that I did not get as a teacher was that it should be things kids can do independently. So you might not necessarily teach something and right away that type of activity goes to the center because you haven't done it enough times with them. So for them to be able to do it independently, it's something they know pretty well, which might feel like, well, what's the point then? It's a waste of time. But it's like you said, it's the automaticity piece. It's being able to do it very quickly so that their brains are freed up for that more complex work. Right. So what, what, are you, what is your opinion about the best centers for a classroom that's aligned with the science of reading? So I really share with teachers um, that, you know, Dr. Archer, she says, like, teach the stuff and cut the fluff, right? I am like team no fluff. And I talk about, you know, we, we want to think about the core five, and that is writing, word study, independent reading, listening center, and then like a partner center. So that might be a partner game or a partner reading, Um, but just really sticking with those core five centers and then thinking about having consistent activities because we know like if we're thinking about five, six, seven-year-old students, like it's a lot if you're continually changing out our centers, like this week we're going to do this, you know, sight word bingo and then next week we're going to do this like stamping activity or something like that. We want to be really, really consistent because our students actually thrive when there's consistency, when there's like predictability. So rather than like every week changing out all the different centers, maybe we're going to keep those centers for like a month. And like you said, like familiar with students. Um, you know, we want to keep the, the same center for like a month, but then switching out the skills and those skills that are, you know, the repetition, the practice of what you're actually teaching during your tier one instruction with your students. So for example, like you might have like a roll and read fluency center, like fluency phrases. And so, you know, you're working on diagraphs. And so you're going to have roll and read fluency sentences that are diagraphs. And so students are going to do that. And then the next week you might have other diagraphs or maybe you're moving into long vowels with silent E. So again, they're still, they know exactly what to do because it's consistent. Um, they're not having to learn like a whole new center type thing, just practicing a new skill, if that makes sense. Yeah. So when you talked about word work, that would be practicing phonics skills, correct? Yes. And then tell me a little bit about how you would do a writing center. That's one I struggle with a little bit because it seems like there needs to be more guidance for that one. So how do you make that work? I like to do writing based on whatever, um, like, skills that we're working on. So when we did narrative writing in my class, when I taught narrative writing to my students during writing time, then we could do like narrative writing prompts or I had like narrative menus or things like that. So they could make a choice, but then write their own story. Um, But just kind of following up again on what we're teaching in our whole group instruction. Do I hear a car? (laughs) It's an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) Like, do you live by a train? Um, So can you maybe give us an example of a specific activity that would maybe not be the best choice for a center? Yeah. um, We do not want to just give our students busy work. 
like coloring. We do not want students to be doing lots of cut and paste where most of their time is doing that like cutting and pasting and gluing activities. We also do not want to be doing activities where students really aren't getting any type of feedback, meaning I've seen um, teachers have these like clip cards where it's like clip on the medial vowel sound or something like that. Well, students could just be clipping and they have no idea if they're doing it correctly or incorrectly, you know? So we want students to have a way, you know, like there's sometimes you can find puzzles or something that only connect if it's correct, right? We also don't want to be giving students, I know teachers might do this, um, and so we want to move away from that, but we definitely don't want to be putting in a center something that you have not already taught your students or practice with your students. So I understand why people might be feeling like this is a waste of time. You know, I know there's a lot of chatter. Um, when I'm in Facebook groups, I see a lot of chatter about independent reading. That's such like a waste of time. It's a waste of time. It is not a waste of time if it's done correctly. But you have to put a lot of scaffolds. You have to put... Um, a lot of things in place so that you do it correctly. I talk about with teachers that, you know, it's really thinking it through before you jump right in. You really have to go slow to go fast with your students. So, so I read something recently. It was in, I, I forget the name of the book exactly. It's something like powerful writing strategies for all students or something like that. It's by Karen Harris and Steve Graham and somebody else. And they said, don't, P, P-E-E, no peeing in the classroom. And what they meant was post, explain, expect, which I was so guilty of that as a teacher and as a mom too, like, like basically saying, so here's what you do. So here, here are the, here's the poster. Here's what you do. Now go do it yes. without any of the we do in there, right? Just yeah. telling them what to do. No, no, very little modeling. And then yeah. just expecting kind of like at home when I tell them to, you know, wash the bathroom counters and they're like, okay, yeah. I just put my hand over it and it doesn't feel clean. Well, I never showed them exactly how to do it. I just expect them to. What would you say in terms of like, how long does it take to get them started? And you just had them do like one particular kind of center to start and then gradually add more. And how does that work? Yeah, I call it teach, model, and practice okay. where I am super explicit of like, this is what we do. This is how we do it. Let's practice it. We go really slow to go fast. If we want our students to do something, we have to be super clear on what exactly we want to do. And I know for teachers that feels like, oh, I don't have time for that because I have all these other things I have to do. But really, if you kind of take a step back, move out of the emotional piece, if you really think about it, it's your job, what your ultimate goal for literacy centers is. Yes, we want to give our students the opportunity for practice. It's important, but it's also really, really important, like you were saying earlier, that we have the time to meet in our targeted small groups to really help our students like in that small group. And so if we have constant interruptions, if kids are off task, if kids aren't engaged in meaningful learning opportunities, we're wasting their time for sure. And we know like every minute counts for every kid every single day. So we really have to set them up for success. And we really have to go slow rolling out your centers. For me, it took like a month. Okay. So the first week of school, 
I probably didn't even start talking about centers because there's so much going on the first week of school. But by the second week of school, I'd have my center chart up on the wall. I'd have all my center cards flipped over. I would say to the students like, friends, we are going to do this thing called literacy centers. I'm going to teach you how we do it. When we flip all these cards over, then we get to start. And so each day during what would be our literacy center block time, you know, um, what I would have allotted in my daily schedule, I would say, okay, today I'm going to talk to you about independent reading. What is independent reading? And I would talk to them. How do you find personal space? How do you find a book? Where do you keep your book box? All the things like go through. Um, and I have actually a membership leaders of literacy and I actually have like checklists of all the things that you need to actually teach. It sounds simple, but it's not. Um, our kids come with all these varied experiences and all the things. So again, if we want them to, if we want, if we have clear expectations, if we want the minutes to count, then we have to really, really be explicit in teaching them every single step how to be successful. So it does. It takes like a month. But if we put that time out and we practice in every day, so then the next day we might say, okay, yesterday we learned about independent reading and this is what it looks like. Remind me, we might even talk about why it's, what, what happens when you're not independently reading and all of that. And then we might be ready to move and add on another center and practice that together. So I might show them like a writing prompt and talk about what writers do when they're at the writing center. And then at, after they do that at the writing center, and then we can even practice. Everybody's doing the same thing so we can get like feedback. Another thing I really, really love to do, and the kids loved it, they ate it up, is I would take my iPad at the time or your iPhone and I would record them as we were like practicing and then I would like pop the video up on the smart board and we would talk about all of the things that we saw that were proof that our kids were actually doing what they were supposed to be doing, that they were engaged, that they were on task, that they were, um, you know, learning and, and working and things like that, so... Um, yes, it's a slow, slow process, but so worth it. So does that mean that you wait to do your small group instruction until that month is over and you've really trained them to do their independent work? Yes, I definitely have to wait. Um, now teachers, we are very creative, so we will find ways to sneak it in because at the beginning of the year, we have a lot of that beginning of the year testing and assessments and all of that. So, you know, either I would find times, little pockets throughout the day, or um, I would just have to be really, really creative. And sometimes I would have to do some like seat work um, instead of all that literacy center training. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because we have to get those assessments done. It's really, really important. Um, but we can't just like throw the kids out there and set these um, bad habits for them for the rest of the year. That's a really good point that if you rush into literacy centers without explaining, you could start bad habits that are hard to undo. Mm -hmm. So it may be at the beginning of the year when you need to pull small, pull individuals or whatever, that they're doing something that's less, not what we want to see long-term, like maybe even some coloring or something, but just ah. knowing that, there, that there's a purpose. And also as you're training them to use the centers over that month or however long it takes, um, you can give them meaningful stuff. Like you're right there to give feedback. So it's not wasted time. You're, yeah. you're doubling it up, but it'll be more focused time, more targeted time as soon as you're able to, to, inst to um, start your small groups and your center time. 
Right. And even after, like, I was saying how I, like, flipped the cards over one by one as we're talking about the centers, and then I put the kids' names up there, so it's, like, a big thing. It's, like, the grand opening, right? The kids are so invested and so excited, and it's, like, we are starting, like, show me now how you're going to, when I call your group, you're going to walk over to your center, and then we all watch group number one as they get their clipboard, and they get their paper, and we're like, wow, look how they're getting started right away. Look how they are like um, finding their own personal space, you know, and all of that. But during that first week, usually that first round of rotations, I try not to pull small groups because mm-hmm. I really want to rotate through the classroom. Mm-hmm. I really want to be there, not to tell them what to do, but to elicit from them, what are you doing? Like, what are you going to do? I see you're, you know, you're almost finished sorting your words on your word activity here. What are you going to do when you're finished? Like, let them tell me. Oh, I see you're having trouble logging into the computer. What could we do? You know, kind of thing like that. And kind of giving them that feedback. I think it really, really makes a difference if we can kind of make ourselves available. Because once that, like, week is over, um, I'm not available anymore. And they know that part of the thing that, that, you know, there's only certain reasons, you know, there's a emergency um, that they can come interrupt the teacher. So they know. So when I think about, you know, organizing centers, I've seen different ways. Like some have been like the kids have a folder with a list of all the centers for that they're supposed to accomplish during the week and they just check them off when they're done. Or there's, and so they have a lot of choice about which, what they do when, and you've got more of a rotation. Can you talk to me about what you think is best and why, or if there's different options and how it would work. So for myself with first graders and kindergartners, and I even think maybe beginning second graders, I really think that they really need that scaffold of structure. I am going here. I'm going to do this. Um, and that is helpful for them. Now kids do like choice but we need to give them like a limited choice. So earlier when I was talking to you about like narrative prompts and I would have like a menu or something. So there would be like pictures and like they could write different stories, like a fall story um, about going apple picking or about riding their bike or, you know, just some topics that they could write about. So they could have a choice, but the choice wasn't, am I going to go do writing or am I going to go do reading? You know, can you imagine if you're like six years old and you go to the writing center and it's like your teacher's like, oh, write a song, write a book, write a menu, write a... That's like way overwhelming to a child. So we really just need to give them like what I say is a limited choice. Mm -hmm. So yes, I believe that we should be assigning our students um, the center that they're going to go to and then offer them some choices once they get there. But a small amount. Yeah. So, you know, when you, the tricky part, I think, for teachers is figuring out the pairing thing. So if I have two students for partner reading, you know, one of the recommendations for partner reading is to have, like, to, that I see often is to, like, basically figure out, order your students by skill level in terms of maybe words per minute or something like that, and then um, break your list apart and, like, child one, if you had a class of 30, be like child one with child 16, child two with child 17. So you're not pairing super low and super high, but you're not also pairing the very high together or the very low together. But if, if you were to do it that way, that gets tricky because they're going to be pulled for small group at different times. So how do you make sure that they get their buddy reading 
done with that their partner's available, I guess, is my question. I, I have tried both ways when I'm grouping students. Mm-hmm. I've tried doing like heterogeneous and homogeneous grouping. And I think each year I kind of look at my students and what's working, what's not. But personally, I really like when my students are grouped at like the same level. Mm-hmm. In first grade, there can be like confusion. There's a lot going on. I had 24 students and there's six different center groups going on, right? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like the number of four kids, four group, four kids in a group. So that's six groups going on in my classroom. So if I'm pulling kids to the table, we don't want kids to like feel like they're missing out or like, let's say they go get a partner and then their partner gets pulled to the table. That's like frustrating. And I'm always thinking about like, again, we want all the minutes to count. So, um, you know, I, I definitely had like buddy reading at a different part of my day during my whole gotcha. instruction where I'd pair my kids like that. I think that's spectacular. But as far as like partner reading or partner games, if they're kind of in a like um, skill level, I think that works also. I think it also works because some of your centers are going to be differentiated. Yep. So, you know, if you're doing word study, even though you're tier one instruction, you're working on long vowels, some of your kids aren't doing that. So you want to have like a situation where red group is going to pull their word study work. They're all doing the same activity, but maybe just different skills, right? So they can pull and actually practice the skills that you're teaching with them at the small group table. So then that would be less confusion because if everybody in your group is pulling from the same folder, other kids aren't like, oh no, I'm in the blue folder. I'm in the green folder, you know, like all of that. Keep it simple um, for them. And also like protecting like their self-esteem. Like, you know, we know like when they feel successful, they're really more willing to like take risks and work harder also. So that is what I like. But I I really want to mention that we have to make sure that our groups are flexible. As kids, you know, progress or have different needs, we're not just like, oh no, you're 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 in this group. You can't leave the group, you know? Mm-hmm. Like make the groups flexible whether it be through um some kind of diagnostic assessment or just like assessment of um like what you're seeing with your students, you know? Just kind of keep that flexible grouping going. So yeah, and I'll just put a plug in there for tier two instruction, like within the MTSS model, like um, that's how kids can catch up, right? Like not only are you giving them that instruction in your small groups, but the kids who need extra support might be getting it from another teacher. And that's how, especially how they might make faster gains and be able to move into a different group. Mm-hmm. Um, back to what you talked about colored folders. So would you say that if, like, let's say you call um, your low group, your green group, of course you wouldn't say low, but the, the kids, yeah. would you say to put their, to make their co- their center activities differentiated by color so they know what they need, like the green folder is where their stuff is, or were you saying not to do that? Yes, I would definitely do that. Okay, yeah, yeah. I agree too. It makes it much easier for everybody. And just, yeah. um, well, just again, to- it's practicing skills for automaticity. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, if green group was still working on CVC words, but then in your, you know, scope and sequence, what you're working with your whole group, you're working on long vowels. Well, my friends in CVC, they need practice on that. They don't need practice on a skill that they're not quite ready for yet. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So any, any troubleshooting things for managing students at centers? Like, 
and all the years that you did them, can you think of like common issues and how you would solve them? Things that teachers might expect to have problems with? Well, you know, I think, I think I mentioned earlier, like we really want to be proactive rather than reactive. So really thinking it through, um, and again, going slow, going fast, yeah, yeah. explicitly. Te- I mean, I taught my kids how to use a glue stick, like mm-hmm. that's, but I mean, I never had kids like drying out their glue sticks, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but we really want to teach those exact center procedures and routines. Talk to them. What is your personal space? What does that look like? What do you do when you're stuck? Um, is it okay to interrupt the teacher? Our kids are really, really capable, but we just really, really have to teach them. Um, and then we also have to reinforce it. And um, this is like one of my secret strategies that really, really works. Um, and I did something in my class called Star Students. And so I would have a post-it or a little notepad, however you want to do it. Um, and I would tell my students, like, I am always looking for star students. And so as I'm at the reading table, as my kids are out working, you know, I'm working with my small group, maybe during transition as another group is coming, or maybe just, you know, I can see out the corner of my eye, I would be able to note down who's doing what. So like Ella, she got started right away, you know, Zachary had a hard time, like, figuring out how to get logged in on the computer. So he went over and asked his friend to help him get logged in. Like, things like that. And then after centers, you know, we would come back together at the end of centers and we would talk about what happened during centers, like our closing time. And I would say, okay, today I want to tell you about the kids on my star list. And it was just that visual or that reminder, that positive reinforcement reminder of the expectations and what students should be doing. Because, you know, they're six years old and they might forget and they need a lot of like repetitive practice hearing. Um, But it was just like a really, really positive way for students to be reminded all the time of what they were actually supposed to be doing. Also, I know like certain centers might be difficult for kids. um, And so I could like positively reinforce them as like the first day that that center is rolled out or something like that. That is such a great idea. And I can picture like for a teacher, like if I were doing that, I would probably have like a list of all my students on a clipboard with a space next to them. So I could keep track of every day. Oh, I've already started. These are the already been the star students. Who else do I want to look for things they're doing right? Exactly. Um, Yeah, exactly. You know, those kids definitely. And I think kids want to do well. They definitely want to do well. And it feels good for them to be recognized. And so however you want to do that, if you want to do tickets or no tickets or just to cheer, it's up to you in your classroom. But it is really, really powerful. So we're at we're getting into the weeds, which is wonderful, because I think that's what teachers want. They want to know the little specific things. So let's talk a little bit more about specifics. And one would be what do you do? What do they do when they're done with their activity? Like sometimes it might be do this until time's up or it might be like a, you do it and it's finished. So what, what, how does that work? Okay. Again, proactive, not reactive. Mm-hmm. So we're setting our students up for success. So as I'm teaching my students, okay, this is like a word building activity that you're going to do at the center. I'm telling my students as we are talking about it before they even go to the center, friends, tell me something you would do if you finished early. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, six hands are, you know, raised the like, Mrs. Winter, we could turn it over and write a sentence with one of the words. We could 
Think of other words that have that same spelling pattern. We could get the magnets out and build the words with the magnets, you know? Mm -hmm. So they're thinking, I could, you know, quiz a friend on my words. You know, they come up with all these great ideas and then they're, but they, but the thing is, is that they know it's not okay. We have established, it is not okay that you just stop and you just lay on the carpet or you come up <laughs> that's my turn, I'm done. They're, that's not okay. You know, if you need to go back and finish other work at your table from earlier, or you want to go read a book, that's fine too, but you must be engaged in learning. So there's never going to be like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And another thing is we want to be looking for centers that are a little more open-ended. So if you're doing a writing center, we don't want just like a writing center with like a prompt where they fill in like the missing words. We mm -hmm. want something that is... Uh, you know, can be more open-ended, um, lend itself to different varies, uh, varied levels of students, and talk to them about if you finish your writing, then you can add a picture. Maybe you want to label your picture and all of those kinds of things. Go back and read your work. Um, but just, just giving them the power to know that they can make a decision on what to do next. Back to your independent reading center. So what, what would be your expectations or what do you think teachers should do for an independent reading center for kids in, let's say, K-1 who are still reading decodable text in their phonics lessons? How would that yeah. look? That's really a really good question. And we definitely talk about that inside Leaders of Literacy. Um, and I actually was so inspired by Margaret Goldberg. She was on the Amplify podcast a while ago, and she was talking about this and the kindergarten teachers that she worked with. Um, but I set up a system in my classroom where we uh, equate it to like healthy eating. Healthy eating means that we eat like all of our nutritious things that grow our brain first. Then we have dessert, right? So when we think about reading independently, we're going to read all of the books that are growing our brains and helping us to become, you know, good readers. And so that would be your decodable book. So whether it be the books that you're working on in your small group or books they've already worked on or decodable sentences, all the things that they can read, books that they can read. And then from there, Margaret was talking about um, this idea of book browsing. And so we want to be careful. We don't want to call it looking at the pictures. You know, that's taboo. But book browsing, because our kids can like have, if they, you know, if your classroom has like a classroom library and they have access, especially to those nonfiction books, they can still learn a tremendous amount by looking at the pictures. They can, they, you know, Kids love dinosaurs or butterflies. They can still look at the pictures and get information. Maybe you have access to books that have um, no words in them, like wordless, like Good Dog Carl and things like that. They can still have an opportunity like as a dessert to do some book browsing. Um, kids love, love, love to read books that you have previously read. If I read Tacky the Penguin, they definitely want to book browse that book. It might not be at their level, but I'm not going to say no, you can't read it. But the majority of the time that they are doing their independent reading should be reading the books that they can actually read, working on decoding, right? Um, making those minutes count for our students and we have to remember, we're gonna call those kids out during the star student time. We're gonna say, Anna, 
I noticed that she read three of her books from her book box. And then later, she found that book on butterflies because Anna loves butterflies. Anna, tell us something you learned today when you were book browsing, mm -hmm. right? And so kids love it. They love it. So that, yeah. thank you. That is so helpful. So I'm thinking about like uh, in your small groups or your whole group, there may be a time then when you're reviewing books, but at some point you, you might say something like, let's move this book into your center, independent reading books, wherever, however you do that, it might be in a folder, it might be in a gallon bag, could be in a magazine type box, but they have a place where they get their books from and there's an expectation, whatever you decide that is like, I don't know if you might say read three or read five or read, you know, one of each mm -hmm. and then give them the freedom to, but again, like we said, you'd be practicing that a lot. So they would know this is the expectation. You do have to start with this and you have to actually read it. Yeah. And you're in that first month, you're really going over that. Yeah. And the kids, I mean, that's part of like the beginning when you're rolling out the new centers and you're talking to them. Like, why is it important for us to pick these books to read? Mm -hmm. We want to become better readers. You know, what, what are, what happens when we can read all of these amazing things happen? We can be successful. We can learn. We can do all these amazing things. So there's like all this buy-in from your students when you set them up to understand that. What would you say to somebody who said, well, I don't have room for centers. What, what can you do when you're limited on space? So get creative. No, <laughs> <laughs> no um, you know, you don't have to have a ton of space. You can just d dedicate a certain area. I just really want to say like be consistent. So if you're writing center activities, if you don't have a lot of space, Put your writing act center activities in one of those like shower caddies where the yes. kids can grab it and they can take it to their table or wherever, a clipboard, wherever. But just really be consistent on where you put that. So the writing center would always be on that bottom shelf. And, you know, you I used to use like uh, Ziploc gallon bags. You can just mm -hmm. put in some activities in that, clip it up to your whiteboard, and that would be, a, you know, where they could find it. But just... You want to take all the confusion away. So if you are consistent and you put the things in the same place every time, there's never, I can't find the, where do mm -hmm. I, all the things. And there's a procedure they know. So um, just doing that and just being really thoughtful about the spaces in your classroom. Um, I know that the computers are really exciting sometimes for kids. And so we don't want to put like certain centers where kids are facing the screen mm -hmm. um, and they can see what's happening on the screen. Mm -hmm. I get distracted because it almost looks like a video game. It's not a video game, but it's like exciting to see even when kids are wearing headphones. So really be thoughtful in how you lay out your room Um I like to put my writing center, if you do have a writing table, like a table, I like to put it like facing the wall because kids are not like looking out into the classroom. They're like looking at the wall. Then the wall can have like anchor charts and things like that also on the wall. Um, but thinking about just being really, really thoughtful, even thinking about like the patterns of traffic in your classroom and mm -hmm. seeing kids out, you know, sometimes like we'd have like, a build a poetry center, you know, or something like that. So thinking about like where that would be, that would be um, out of the way of traffic and things like that too. So when you did centers, did you have, did you, when you were finishing up your small group, did you have like a warning time? Like where you said, oh, time to transition to set or clean up or anything like that? 
Absolutely. Um, again, because I'm, I'm like super type, type A. Um, so I started off the year always in first grade with like very structured. So I would do, you know, round one where I'd work with a small group. The kids are doing center one. They're station number one. Then I would ring a bell. I tell my kids, hands on your head. And so look at me. And then I would tell them like, okay, friends, great job. Let's clean up and move on to center number two. If you forget where you're going, go up to the center chart. So really, really structured at the beginning. And then soon I would just ring a bell and they would just move. And then soon it's like this release of responsibility, giving it over to them. By mid to, to the third quarter of the year, I would start putting one of those timer clocks where it kind of counts down the minute. Mm -hmm. You've seen those? Mm -hmm. um, and I would just mark it with like um, highlighter tape. Like this is where center one is going to be finished. This is an approximation. Let's talk about the word approximation. If you have a few more words to write in your story, do you have to move exactly when the, you know, kids are so literal, right? So mm -hmm. like you don't have to move exactly there. Finish up that last sentence you know, and then you're ready to move. By the mm -hmm. end of the year, it wasn't like I was telling them anything to do other than we're going to get started and we're going to clean up and meet at the carpet. And generally, I did a lot of singing. So when it was time to clean up, I would just start singing a song and we would just clean up and move on over to the carpet. So yeah, definitely, I think especially for K1, really, really structured at the beginning and letting them feel success and guided and then release the responsibility to them um, as they become more capable. Yeah, now we've, we've been talking a lot about K-1, but I, I recently had a question from someone about second grade centers and so much of this just transfers over, right? Like the independent reading time might not be decodable text, might be some other books that they're working on, but there's an expectation that we're not just grabbing new books every day, that we're working on books and then we're done, then we can choose new books. The, the partner reading, that's easy to do with partner plays, um, readers theater, um, could be some passages from ReadWorks, lots of options there. Um, listening to reading, they can still do that. Although I know one thing I've read is that if you want that to actually build fluency, they need to be reading along, like actually reading with the recording. So that would be something to practice with a second graders, for example. Certainly you could do writing in a, for second grade, and I'm maybe missing one. Was there one I was missing? A word work. That's easy, right? Just um, phonics games and things like that. So this is very applicable up through the primary grades and, and certainly you could think of it in a different way if you need to do it for older students too but this is not just not just for k1 just to right. be clear about that right uh, i know some people say this we're, all, we're winding down now but some people would say i get this email a lot <laughs> like how do i e how do i store all your resources how do i organize them do you have any tips for organization for center material well my number one tip is don't put it in a pile <laughs> <laughs> I'm guilty that, right you're, guilty. you're a teacher and you're like I'll oh, just put on this little counter right over here and you have a mountain of things to file and then you're like oh it's so overwhelming I'm just gonna throw it away right <laughs> so um I just think that you find a system I personally like to organize my center by center type so if they okay. were roll a fluency phrase I would just put them like in order as skills progressed. And like a, and like a filing cabinet or something? And like a filing cabinet, sure. yes. Um, uh, but some people like to do it seasonally, like that works too, but just um, figure out a system and then keep up with it. And you can mm -hmm. 
teach parent volunteers. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky to have a teacher assistant. As you're changing out new centers, you can teach them, this is my system. Could you help put this away during those times, those minutes that they have? But just really keep up with it. Um, that would be kind of similar to the, the idea of taking a month possibly to teach students how to use centers is the time that you spend thinking of a system and then following through on it will save you so many headaches and time in the future. You don't have to reprint, yeah. refine. I was, uh, I won't even go into that of all the, all the things I lost as a teacher um, because I didn't have a system. So it's worth figuring that out. I know maybe in the show notes, I'll look around and see what I can find. People have different ideas using like those big plastic um, tubs from craft stores like with the lid that pops up. Um, also like, magazine type racks. So I'll see what I can find for people to see something that that might help them. So um, this has been fabulous. You've answered so many of my picky questions, which I really appreciate. Can you talk to us real briefly about um, the center resources on your site? I'll definitely link to all your posts about centers, but also your membership and how that works. Awesome. Um, Yes. If you go over to Mrs. Winter's Bliss and you just use the search bar and type in literacy centers, I'm sure you will get at least 10 blog posts. (laughs) that touch on a lot of these things, maybe a little deeper. Um, But I also have a membership called Leaders of Literacy, and it's a community for kindergarten, first and second grade teachers. And I have a whole video course that walks them through step-by-step how to, you know, what are the good centers, how to plan for centers, how to prep your centers quickly, how to organize, how to get your groups, how to launch like those step-by-step, those like checklists of all the things that you need to teach, model, and practice with your students. So that's all there, but the members also love that they get um, meaningful center activities that are already created, and I'm really mindful. We don't want teachers on Sunday afternoon cutting out snowballs and mm-hmm. the sort. We want them to be effective, but like low prep because teachers have so much to do. So we have created um, really meaningful activities, but are as low prep as possible, not fluffy, meaningful for students. Um, And we open the membership three to four times a year because we like to really welcome a new cohort of teachers in, make sure we can support them with everything they have. So I can provide a link and you can share that also um, if anyone is interested. Well, thank you so much, Christina. This was fabulous. Yes. Thank you. You can find the show notes for this episode at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 160. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.